When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Gray Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. And crazy intro announcement, this is the last X-Men book from the 1960s. This book was published in December of 1969. Today we're going to be reviewing uh, X-Men number 63, which is three issues before the end of the first volume of the X-Men. So we've got some cool stuff coming up in the new year. Uh, but this uh, this episode will be titled War in the World Below. Uh, one more dramatic Roy Thomas title for us. <laughs> I am uh, I am so excited to have my friend Amanda Martini returning to the show. And uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I am verklein and excited to have uh, the incredible writer, uh, Greg Wright, joining us today as well. Uh, Greg and Amanda, let me have you both introduce yourselves. Let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And our question, based on the issue today, uh, we'll pick up on this in a while. Angel does not trust the right person. <laughs> kind of a nonsense part of today's story. But uh, was there ever a person that you trusted that was the wrong person to trust? And if so, what happened next? Uh, let me go to Greg first. Hi, Greg. How are you? I'm great. Um, I'm, I'm Gregory Wright. Uh, I'm a formal, former Marvel Comics editor. Um, and then I went moved into writing comics and coloring comics and freelance editing comics. And now I work with special needs kids. Uh, I also do a lot of charity barbecue uh, and charity beer brewing. And I'm still doing comics when I'm uh, when I when I have, you know, time. <laughs> Charity uh, Barbecue is one of Demanda's best drag queen friends. I'm, I'm just, I'm just joking. Wait, that's a real, that's a real person. No, that's a terrible drag name. I'm just kidding. Oh. No, it's not. Are you kidding? I'd love to, I'd love to have that person at, at our barbecues. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, so yeah, my my pronouns uh, is he him. You know, kind of dull. Um, you know, it's funny. I I don't really have any great story of somebody that I trusted that I shouldn't have trusted. I like, it's like I wish I'd known that ahead of time. I would have tried to like make something up or. Or something. Um, uh, I, yeah, I just, you know, I've been very lucky. I, I have this sort of dull life where, you know, I, things weren't very normal for me. You know, I, I grew up with a, a, a mom and a dad at home who, you know, punished the living crap out of me every time I was horrible to my sister. Um, you know, probably my sister's the one, you know, she trusted me and that was a, a, a bad move on her part. Um, but, but she got even with me, you know, as kids, you know, she would, she would go do the bad thing, say, oh, he did it. And because, uh, she was the angel, uh, you know, my parents believed her, so I, I would get in trouble, so. 
Uh, I have a little sister story for you in a moment too. That's my <laughs> story for the day. Uh, I'm so happy to have you here, Greg. And then let's go to Demanda next. Hi. Hi, I'm Demanda Martini. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. Uh, I am a Washington DC based drag performer. Uh, I also uh, used to work with intellectual and developmentally disabled uh, children and adults. Uh, and, so I'm, it's kind of... and I'm a therapist, so we are all on the <laughs> <Wow. table. laughs> um, Who would have so thought it, this would have happened? <laughs> I know. Um, so that's a kind of like a thing that I am really passionate about as well. Um, but uh, I currently uh, just, you know, uh, cosplay and twirl around uh, DC. I love a Z-lister. Uh, and Silver Sable is another one of like my little hidden favorites. Um, and uh, I, again, I, I love to cosplay like the little known folks. So for those, again, I've been on the pod a few times now. Is, it, is this five, six? I, uh, I, I'd have to count. I think it's five if we count Lorelei. So somewhere in there. Um, like again, the last time uh, we chatted, I've done Lorelai, who was introduced in this issue. Uh-huh. We have some things to say. <laughs> uh, and um, and Madame Sanctity, again, being on this podcast has allowed me to just like, and again, all of them were just like little closet thing, closet cosplays that I just like you, have all of the pieces for. You came in Jean Grey kitty cat mask first time I met you. Yes, that's right. That's right. Because we were doing uh, super early, early excellent stuff. Um, Anyway, uh, someone that I trusted. So as I said, I used to work with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And sometimes you really feel like you're, uh, you've got a good staff and folks that are like there for you uh, to support our individuals and you just, uh, and, and so this person came recommended, uh, their mother had worked for the, the agency for many, many years, and uh, she was, an, uh, so I hired this person to be in charge of one of our individuals who has pica, uh, so like just puts things in their mouth all the time, and um, so they needed constant supervision, and so that means that they also had someone who rode on the bus with them, so that job was very kind of critical, because they got on the bus at like 6.30 in the morning, so it's like you needed someone to be there in the morning at 5.30 to get on the bus in order to, you know, do, you know, the whole day, and like you got paid extra hours and like a little bump in pay because, you know, yada, 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 and the person that we hired, she lasted a good like three weeks, and it was just like, cool, thanks, man, like I put my faith, I put my trust in, in this, and it just didn't work out. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it really, it really sucked <laughs> to be uh, honest. Uh, yeah, that's uh that's an awful, awful thing. Uh, so finally, my name is Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. You guys all know where I'm from because you hear this show. Uh, uh, the, the story that comes to mind for me, and I'm erring on the side of silliness. I have a gay little sister. Her name is Sherry. She's my favorite sister. And I have Five of them, by the way. Uh, when we were young, uh, she's three years younger than me. Uh, she told me that uh, everyone was playing, or excuse me, she said, we're playing hide and seek. And I went out in the yard and I hid like behind a rock way in the back of our field. And then she invited all her friends inside to like watch TV and play video games and left me out there for like two and a half hours before I finally came in and was like, where is everybody? It was a harsh lesson in learning not to trust the rim. <laughs> oh my word. Uh. <laughs> uh, so Sherry, if you're hearing this, I love you. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll visit soon. 
Uh, we're going to start out uh, this morning getting to know Greg first thing. Now, uh, I know there are a couple of rabid, incredible Silver Sable fans out there, much like myself, among them, Demanda Martini, and uh, also a friend of the podcast, Sarah Century, who was unable to join us at the last minute due to illness. And I know she's so sad because she also loves this character very much. Uh, Greg is a name that you know from literally hundreds and hundreds of comic books. Greg has colored and edited so many Marvel books across so many years and written well over 100 books at the same time. Oh, yeah. the, most, the most epic being uh, his 35-issue run on Silver Sable and the Wild Pack, which was edgy and pushy and incredible and inclusive and diverse in a time where you did not get a lot of that type of representation no. in comic books. So I want to start, we're going to spend most of our time on Silver Sable today, even though this is an X-Men podcast, <laughs> we, we go all over the Marvel universe uh, at the same time. I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey from kind of fan into professional. I know you started out working with the incredible Mark Grinwald. Yeah, well, no, actually, it's actually fun. So I, I went to film school at NYU. So uh, my friends and I, our goal was to become independent filmmakers like the Coen brothers. So, you know, but, you know, unfortunately, you, you have to pay the rent. And uh, my one friend, uh, D.G. Chichester, had gotten a job at Marvel um, because he ran out of money after he made his senior film and we, he couldn't go out for pizza. So he got a paid internship uh, with Jim Shooter, which turned into an assistant editor's job over at the Epic Comic Division with the wonderful Archie Goodwin. Um, when we, when I graduated, I didn't know what I was going to do while I was waiting for us to, of course, become the next Martin Scorsese's. And he said, you should come work at Marvel because we've got an opening. And the opening was basically a, um, like a secretary receptionist position, which meant there was nothing for me to do other than answer the phone and, and keep uh, certain individuals away from Archie Goodwin. So that's actually where I got <laughs> my start. Um, you know, sitting at a little desk outside of, you know, the, the four people that ran, you know, Epic Comics, which was the more artsy, um, adult, uh, oriented, creator owned part of, uh, of Marvel. So my, my beginnings actually was working with creators doing their own material. Uh, and your job wasn't to tell them how to do their job. Your job was to make sure that their work got presented in the best way possible. So that's, that's kind of how I started. Then I moved over, you know, because nobody wants to be a secretary forever. Um, and our film thing never actually took off. So I said, like, well, I guess I'm going to have to have a career in comics, which is just as good as making movies because I actually got to write stories that got published. So people got to read. Whereas if I had been doing movies, I probably would have written stuff and never nobody ever would have seen it. So when I moved over to work for Mark, um, that's when uh, things changed dramatically because the Marvel side, we tell the people what you're going to do. Um, where, and so for that was a shock for me that, you know, you didn't ask a penciler, well, gosh, who would you like to inker? Ink you. No, no, you just chose for them. And it didn't matter if they didn't like it. And I, and I didn't like that. So I, I applied my epic approach. So I started chatting with the creators a little more and trying to help them get what they really wanted, um, which really helped me. So I, I made friends with all of the creator, all the really top creators very quickly because suddenly they were like, oh, this guy's going to actually let me try to have uh, a say in the letterer and the colorist and the inker. And, you know, he's going to try to make it what I want. So that that's kind of where I got my start. And uh, where you and I kind of have a connection is the big book that Mark edited that was the, the handbook of the Marvel Universe, um, which, you know, was 
it's just it's the biggest job you ever have is trying to edit that book, you know, because it's an encyclopedia. You know, we'd have to wrangle all these characters, get the art for these characters, put put this thing up. Um, and I had no idea who most of these characters were at that point at all. But Mark knew everything. Uh, plus, we had Peter Sanderson, the writer. He also knew everything. And he also we were blessed because he he could write prose. Perfect. We didn't have to edit it. It didn't need grammar checking. Nothing. It was spotless. And when we sent it around for the other editors to approve, because uh, every editor that was in charge of a character, like the X-Men editors, they were very picky. Um, so every X-Men character had to go to the X-Men office. They would have to read it and make sure that we were creating an entry that was correct. And Peter got it right every single time. So that's where I kind of started. And then he, he threw Howard Chaikin at me and said, oh, here's this graphic novel, which was the Archie Goodwin, Howard Chaikin, uh, Nick Fury, Wolverine graphic novel. He goes, I think you, you've met Howard. You get this done. <laughs> so I had a nice little introduction to Howard Chaikin and, uh, you know, lots of lots of other people. So that was that's kind of where I started there. We uh, we interviewed Elliot Brown on my podcast one time. Oh, man. We, we talked a lot about the original handbooks. Now, I know you worked, you were telling me, uh, you worked a lot on the Update series in 1989. I actually was the editor of that, but huh? the the last, I don't know, four or five issues of the the second version of the handbook of the Marvel Universe, I, I was the assistant editor on that. So I was basically, mostly I was in charge of all of the art. Um, you know, that was, that tended to be what Mark generally just put me in charge of the artists, the inkers, the, the letterers, the colorists, and he handled most of the, the writers. And I joined the books in the 2006 run. Were they right? So that was like four or five versions, you know, late. So I don't know what, you know, how that was back then. Um, yeah, yeah. An entirely funny. different ballgame, but still kind of the same, just with a lot more history in the universe. Right? Oh, yeah. It was a lot more stuff. <laughs> and then you got to figure it okay. These four writers ignored all the stuff that happened here. How do I make this feel like it's all part of the same history? Which is, it's you know, a lot of people don't realize how hard it is to take all these stories and, and create a timeline that makes sense, because that's really what your job is when you do an entry for a character, is to figure out how to make it sense and make sure all the editors, then the editors have to sign off. Okay. That sounds good. So for our X-Men fans, Greg's name has been all over X-Men books. And I'm just going to list a handful, although there's way more than this. Greg was the editor on the Wolverine Punisher damaging evidence series. Uh, Greg was the colorist on the entire run of X-Men, the hidden years uh, and on several X-Men annuals as well as on the Wolverine Gambit Victims series, which oh, yeah. uh, that was nice. Work. We made a lot of money on that one. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great visual book. It's beautiful. I mean, it I could go, amazing. I could go on and on, but I'd love to hear a little bit of your fan slash professional connection to the X-Men uh, in general, before we focus on your writing a bit. You know, I was never a huge fan of the X-Men until I started working at Marvel. Um, they just didn't grab me. I, I was more, you know, I, I liked, you know, Batman, of course, but I, I like things like Iron Man and, you know, my favorite character is Nick Fury. Um, I, I liked a lot of the, the, the smaller characters. So I, I didn't really, until I got to Marvel, and then suddenly I'm, I'm reading, you know, the, the Chris Claremont stuff. And I think when I got there, I think it, he was working with Paul Smith and with uh, John Romita Jr. Um, so I, I got to enjoy, enjoy, you know, what Chris did, you know, and, and Chris would come into the office often and, and sit and just tell you the story that he was writing, no matter how much work you had, 
you know, he might sit there and, and, and read his fan mail to you. So you, you kind of got to know Chris. So it was a little weird to become a fan of the X-Men by being friendly and friends with Chris Claremont, who was the writer, who to us was just a guy that wrote these comics. He, it was just his job. You know, yeah, yeah. you know, Chris is a big guy, you know, it's a, he's a big celebrity sort of guy, but to us, he was just, you know, the normal guy that, you know, constantly wore, you know, uh, cargo pants. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, so it was, you know, so it was, it was interesting to work on the hidden years that burn burn and Tom Palmer did because they kind of went back and connected it to all this older stories, um, that he had to kind of fit in. So that was, that was pretty fascinating. I also did the original, triptych x-men poster that jim lee did um i did a blue line painting of that so the original they've redone that a couple times but the original poster um i i painted it and i still actually have the original uh color from it which i if i thought of it i would have brought it out um but we're, it's we're about talking, we're talking like the connecting covers from his yeah it was those three connecting covers that they yeah, are yeah, like huge poster. so at one point i i did a lot of blue line paints blue lines when they give you um they basically give you a, a a board that has blue, the blue art in blue that you paint, and then they put the um, the black and white on top of it. Um, so you paint it, because this is before we did all this stuff on uh, computers. So I did a huge amount of posters. So I did like a Gambit poster. I did that X-Men poster. Um, I, I did, a, there's a huge amount of posters. I did a Silver, the Silver Sable poster that came out. I painted that one. Um, are, are you talking about the, the big guns one? No, no, I did that. That that's a weird poster because it's you know I'll have to, I'll there's characters on there that are not in Silver Sable because they made that poster when there was a different writer attached to Silver Sable who did such a terrible terrible job on the first issue. They fired him, brought me in literally three days before they needed the plot for the first issue, and I had to go what? Because <laughs> I, I I mean not to completely derail, but so I had that poster, uh, and I think it's still folded up very neatly in in my closet somewhere. I tried to look for it, but I wasn't going to dig too hard for it. Um, but I remember looking at that, and then as someone who has the run of Silver Sable, huh? um, like, I was like, wait, who, who, who is are that? These, who are these people on this? <laughs> and, and I didn't even like a lot of the other, because, like, I'm not a Punisher fan. Uh, Terror Inc. was not, like, my jam. But, like, I kept that poster up, and it was huge it literally covered like yeah, it was big one of my entire walls in my bedroom and i kept it just because it was silver sable yeah it's cool it's a, it's a big poster but you know people are like well who's this character i'm like i have no idea who that one character is like what's miss marvel i said i don't know i guess the other writer thought he was going to use miss marvel you know and I, <laughs> yes! said, I said i had no intention of using any of that you know because my what i did was totally off the different than the original writer's idea was every issue was going to be a team-up book so every issue he was going to have the X-Men or Spider-Man or whatever. And the problem is you have to coordinate with that editor to, you know, and, and if you're going to use the X-Men, you know, they're overused anyway. And I don't know what every single version of the, his first issue he did got worse and worse and worse. And all of the editors were hating it. And they finally just said, this is a waste of time. They threw it away and they said, are you still interested? And I said, uh, yes. You know, and they're like, great. I need the plot in two days. I'm like, what, wait, what, what? Um, so, so I had to write, you know, the first issue is not the first issue I was planning to write because I, I had a whole different idea. So I had to rethink everything I was doing. And my original intent, I was going to do this dark sort of adult noirish version of Silver Sable. And, I, and they said, well, 
you know, and Joe Casada was supposed to draw the book originally, but that the writer chased him off. And then Jay Lee was going to draw it. The writer chased him off. And I'm like, God, those guys would have been perfect for what I'm thinking. So I said, well, who's drawing it? And they go, Stephen Butler. And I'm like, who's Stephen Butler? I, I've never heard of this guy. Oh, he draws like Jim Lee. Okay, that sounds good. Um, so I said, well, send me the stuff so I can figure out how I want to write the book. And when I got it, it's kind of like Jim Lee, but it's very sort of Marvel comic-y, very Spider-Man, not dark, noirish stuff. Beautiful stuff. Wonderful guy. I loved working with Steven. Um, but I immediately had to say, okay, I can't do this super dark, noirish book. I have to do a book that's a little more fun. But I said, I'm going to still use all of these characters I had planned on um, that I thought, Hi, how am I going to get past Marvel's internal policies with some of this stuff? Uh, but I did. Nobody stopped me ever, not once, which shocked me. So let me read your intro. If you open a Silver Sable issue, uh, which uh, from I think this is her only series, actually. I was going to say from her first series, but Silver Sable in the Wild Pack, outside of just a couple of one-shots. No, nah, it was the only one we did. Yeah, yeah. So uh, here's, here's the intro. Relentlessly trained in multiple forms of hand-to-hand -hand and armed combat, Silver Sable was destined to inherit the command of her father's professional soldier unit, the Wild Pack. Under the auspices of Silver Sable International, she has since transformed them into the ultimate, ultimate mercenary combat force, now the economic foundation of her beloved homeland, Simcaria. Uh, Silver Sable herself is the daughter of a Nazi hunter. She is a trained assassin. She is a supermodel and a world leader uh, and a like super tough, uh, super tough, like profit-driven hero who has like very little soft spot space like she's she's focused on the mission but she's also extremely loyal to the people that she recruits yeah. doesn't care about your background she just wants to bring you in and you could have you would have expected most writers to give her a team of crazy villains to work with right like let's put bullseye and wolverine on her team or whatever but you gave her some uh some unpowered characters that were all pretty much new and created for this series the exception being the Sandman and to a lesser extent, the Crippler. Uh, yeah. And it's a wild connection of, of mercenaries. How did you assemble this team? And then we're going to talk about the representation of them and what they meant for this time period. Well, for me, the big thing was I, the, what I, the only, I mean, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends created Silver Stable and they did a fantastic job, but they never really created the Wild Pack. It was always just um, this group of, guys dressed in the stupidest looking costumes with the stupidest color ever. And they were just like, you know, like in Star Trek, they were like the red shirts, you know, they're here to like either get killed or to just do what she says and whatever. And I said, I don't like that. You can't, if you're going to call something Silver Sable in the Wild Pack, the Wild Pack have to be characters. And if you're going to have characters, they need to be interesting and fun. Um, so I, I actually took my inspiration from James Cameron's Aliens movie. Um, and if you remember the, uh, um, the, the Marines, they were so different. And the thing was, and you know, they all, they, they, they kind of fought with each other and, got, and, and didn't necessarily all like each other, but they all had an individual, very easy to, to identify personality. So, but once they, they got into their, um, their combat mode, they worked together. Fantastic. So that was, that was what I want. I said, I want a group of interesting characters that are not going to necessarily like each other, but when they're in combat mode, they would be fine. Um, but I like to write characters that I, I, especially back then, I like characters that are not 
goody two-shoe characters. I like characters that, you know, have a dark side, um, may not necessarily be even good people, um, and, and that just weren't around in, in the comic book, you know, books. And at the same time, because I've been working with Dwayne McDuffie, we, we created the new version of Deathlock. Um, and both of us felt that there really wasn't a lot of representation in comics at all. I mean, everybody was basically a straight white guy or, you know, some really fake looking, you know, straight white woman. And that there should be something different um, because I don't want to write. I mean, you know, I'm a straight white guy. I don't want to write about me. I'm boring. I want to write characters that are, are more interesting and different that I have to actually do some work to research, you know, because I had to do a lot of research for a lot of the, the kind of characters that I did. Um, so, you know, it was very easy. Crippler I had created in a Daredevil annual, um, and he was originally much, much more horrible. Um, and I finally well, I decided- let's, let's, let me pause you. Let's start with Crippler. One, <laughs> member, one member of the Wild Pack is Crippler. His name is Carl Strickland. He's a, how I would describe him, a sadomasochistic, racist, white supremacist, ex-Nazi, ex-bodyguard to the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> Just something no. there. Did I get no, that No, right? no, no. Half of that is right. You know, <laughs> initially, that was what he was supposed to be. And I said, no, I actually like this character a little too much. So I actually kind of split the, uh, the racist uh, Nazi crap off. And that's Douglas Powell. That's a, that's this other character. So Crippler, he's he is a he's a sadomasochist. Uh, his whole deal is he just doesn't fit in anywhere. Um, and you know, I base his personality on me and and Andrew Dice Clay. Um, <laughs> so if you if you ever when you reread it, read read every bit of his dialogue in Andrew Dice Clay's voice, and you'll okay. go, aha, that makes so, so I, much sense. I, uh, I I do not mean to interrupt you. However, I. Feel like we are totally vibing because number one, Aliens is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, it is a Christmas classic in our house. I will not go into the details of why we watch it every year at Christmas, but we do. Um, but when you just said Andrew Dice Clay, like that's who I heard when I read <laughs> when I read that character. And Chen oh, <laughs> and, and, and Chen to me, one of the reasons I really liked her is because she reminded me a lot of Vasquez. From the Aliens movies, that, who is that, yes, who, who <laughs> one of my favorite characters yep. um, from that from that franchise, and I'm just like, oh my god, you're just saying all of all of the things that like I wanted to ask or wanted to like <laughs> see if see if that's there what you I'm go. So you vibe in the right direction. Yes, <laughs> Crippler is written uh, as someone who's kind of wrestling with his own demons. Often he's yeah, that was the whole thing. Well, that was the, for for me. Part of what I wanted to do with Silver Sable is because I didn't want her to just be like a bitch on, on wheels. Um, part of her thing is she wants to give people and nobody else gives a shot, a sh shot to redeem themselves in some way. Um, on the one hand, whether they redeem themselves or not, hey, I can use these people. They're, they're a lot cheaper than, you know, hiring Spider-Man. Um, but the other thing, you know, because if you look at all of them, they all had some kind of checkered past that, you know, wouldn't necessarily get them a job. Um, you know, and Crippler was, you know, he didn't, you know, he, you know, he cops didn't, didn't work out being a cop military didn't work out being in Hydra was really bad, you know, so he, he escaped from that. And then he was just kind of, uh, knocking around as a vigilante, enjoying beating the living crap out of, of criminals until, uh, he found, you know, silver stable and, and that worked out really well for him. Um, but yeah, I kind of redeemed him before he started into that book, but yeah, so I took all this, all the other nasty stuff and gave it to Powell. 
because um, I wanted I wanted a character who was going to say all the horrible things um, that you know make things interesting, but that everybody could react badly to it. So I I got a chance to write this terrible dialogue that he would say, um, and then have people you know slam him. So you can say the bad thing in a comic as long as you point out to the reader, hey, that guy's bad. Um, <laughs> so I had enormous amounts of fun uh, trying to figure. You know, so of course I I had to bring Battlestar in and. Uh, uh, you know, and Mark Grunewald actually gave me Battlestar because I said, you know, I, you know, you're not using him. Can I have him? Um, and my so, goal was like, so let me introduce Battle. He needs a job. So let me might... introduce Battlestar really quickly. So Mark Grunewald told a story about Captain America getting replaced uh, by a government-sponsored Captain America named Super Patriot, who's gone on to become the character U.S. Agent, and his partner was a black who they initially called Bucky before they realized that that's kind of a racist term. <laughs> so that character who's super strong goes on to become Battlestar. So he's kind of a, he's, he's kind of a Captain America, black Captain America, long before they were doing sure. black Captain America, uh, or, or at least someone in that type of role. Uh, and then him coming into your series, he's kind of the most heroic person around. He's a, well, that he's was the thing I wanted, again, I wanted, I, you know, I was looking for representation and I said, I, right, this guy's going to be trying harder than everybody else. And I said, because I, of the because I had Powell, this bigoted racist human, I wanted to explore that relationship because he's just not having it with Powell, and Powell just can't stand the fact that this guy's better than him. He can't stand the fact that this guy saves his butt, all, you know, without even blinking. Um, so it was going to help to you know because the, the original goal was to try to unracist Powell by the end somewhat, um, and, you know. So that was kind of the thing. But, you know, when you bring up the, the Bucky thing with Battlestar, I, I have to give you another story. So this goes back to my friend Dwayne McDuffie. You know, when he and I were, when I I gotten him into Marvel, he, he, he and, comes at me one day. McDuffie is just an amazing, amazing yeah, person. Unbelievable. So he comes to me one day. He goes, I think your boss is kind of racist. And I went, what? He goes, yeah, Mark's Mark. He, you know, I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, and he, and he was talking about, you know, you, you can't have a black man call him Bucky. And I said, what are you talking about? I, I had no idea that, that this Bucky thing was a problem. I, he explained it to me and I went, okay, um, I didn't know this. And I can guarantee you Mark doesn't. He goes, no, Mark's too smart. He would know. And I said, no, he doesn't know. You have to tell him. And he goes, oh my God, I can't tell Mark Grunewald this. And I said, you know, you must tell him this. So I, I dragged Dwayne into the office. I made him explain it to Mark. Mark was absolutely horrified. He had no idea he'd, you know, because he was trying to do the opposite. He was trying to like bring in some more black characters, bring in some more representation. He just didn't know how to do it. So then he had Dwayne sit down. And the two of them actually crafted the the part of the story where Battlestar changes to, I mean, where he becomes Battlestar because you got the character. Well, oh, I'm Bucky. So so we had to make the character kind of unaware himself, which was actually interesting because not everybody is aware of some of the language. That that affects the their group um, completely. It's because it's changing all the time. So yeah, Dwayne was very responsible for helping get that solved, which endeared him to Mark Grunewald. Uh, so anything Dwayne wanted to do anywhere, Dwayne pretty much got uh, carte blanche from Mark uh, because he was so grateful that Dwayne had pointed this out, um, and it made an interesting. You know, again, it would make an interesting scene. That was the one of the great things about working with like some of the people I worked with is we're constantly talking and battering ideas back and forth. So a lot of stuff shows up in books because uh, we had an argument or we had a fight over something, um, which is kind of cool. 
So yeah, I had to give you that story because that's a that's a fun little. Nugget. That's an amazing story. And if you guys didn't hear uh, Andre Mason and I's episode about Moses Magnum, we talk a lot about Dwayne McDuffie in that episode and how much we respect him. Uh, may he rest in peace. We lost him in oh. 2011. Just an incredible person. Um, next member of the team, and I know this is the one a lot of people would be most eager to hear about, is Amy Chen. Uh, yeah. Amy, if I am if I am getting her backstory correct, Amy uh, survived uh, the conflict in Vietnam, uh, lost her entire family. It's kind of alluded that she was sold into sex trafficking and child slavery. She's yeah. trained as an assassin. Uh, later comes out as uh, uh, killing the people who hurt her, and then becoming a very deadly world assassin who is also a lesbian. <laughs> She's uh, <laughs> she's an incredible character. You just don't see characters like this in the comics. No. Tell them, tell me about Amy Chen. She was really hard to write because I I, I kind of messed up her Asian heritage. Uh, unfortunately, I wish I could go back and kind of correct that. Um, but you know, I again, it was I wanted this representation, and I knew I wasn't going to be allowed to actually say you know she's a lesbian. You know, so I I had to kind of. I thought I was being subtle. I read it now and I go, well, I don't think it was very subtle at all. But I kind of just kept it in the background and I, I kind of kept the idea that, you know, she was, uh, you know, very attracted to Silver Sable and had a lot of respect to her, which is why I always had her call her Milady. Um, but, you know, when I... I mean, I'm gay. Play, I'm gay and I'm attracted to Silver Sable. <laughs> you know. Well, you know, when, when Stephen Butler draws her, I mean, you know, she's, you know, she's hot. And, and the funny thing was one of the, my first directives was I don't want to see any fucking cheesecake drawings of Silver Sable. I said, she's going to look sexy and awesome no matter what she's doing. I don't want to see her bent over ass in, in the reader's face. I don't want to see all these, you know, the, these cleavage shots. You know, we don't need them. Just draw her doing whatever she's doing. I mean, she's I mean, she's wearing this tight clothes. She's a you know gorgeous, you know, the big hair and everything. There's no way not for her to look sexy no matter what. So that was actually a big command. It's like, and with all the characters, I actually wrote I, what I wanted their bodies to look like. I hate when all the bodies look the same. You know, I you know, and and I said you know because we introduced a character who's based on uh, Steve Butler's um, wife or something at the time. I think it was uh, Powell's sister. Um, and I said, I, I want her to be curvy. I want her to be heavier. So he actually, you know, you don't usually see that. He actually drew a an attractive, uh, heavier woman, you know, who, of course, immediately went straight for Battlestar, which irritated, you know, uh, Powell. Um, and that was that's I mean, it's it just writes itself when you have these characters that that have such big personalities. You know, you just go, well, what would happen if this happened? And you can you know, you just know exactly how they're going to ping pong. But she was hard because. You know, I didn't, I didn't know any, you know, lesbian assassins, you know, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all lesbians are assassins, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, it was like, you know, so I, I was constantly, you know, like with Silver Sable, I was constantly talking to a lot of my female friends about, well, how would you react to this? And how would you react to that? Um, you know, and I, you know, I talked to some of my female Asian friends, about, well, how would this be? I talked to some of my lesbian friends, but, you know, you know, trying to come up with an, a personality for, you know, that sort of character, I just, I just sort of had to wing it and hope, hope for the best. Um, you know, so then when I got to, I, I think it's Silver Sable issue 28, where, uh, her, her assassins, female assassin squad that used to work for the foreigner, um, they, they come in contact with them. Um, I, I had, I finally was like, okay, I'm going to really, this is going to be the lesbian issue where you find out that she actually was with one of those women 
But somehow people thought that I had created this secret lesbian assassin squad, you know, and I went, I did what? And I was like, I don't remember doing that. And, you know, it, and I thought, why didn't I do that? It does. Uh, it, it There does seem to be some subtext there. But it, 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 I didn't it's mean fine, to listen. That they were all like a, a bunch of all lesbians. I was like, well, that was a, accidental, I guess, you know, but it, it's one of those things. Sometimes you think you're being subtle, but then by that, when it gets drawn, um, you know, it, it kind of goes the other way. But I was like, well, I'm fine with that. That's, you know, that doesn't, but nobody, nobody even flagged it. I was shocked because I had, you know, that one was pretty obvious. I thought that, you know, finally, okay, we're really pointing out she's gay. Um, but you know, nobody, no, you know, nobody flagged any of the stuff that I did, except for when I did the abortion, uh, stuff that they, they sort of got a little ner nervous with that. And I said, I'm not telling you how it's ending. Um, but you know, it was like several issues in and they're like, is she wearing body parts around her neck? Because she used to take, uh, you know, Ch Chen always took uh, a souvenir from, you know, somebody she killed or hurt. So there was ears and fingers and all kinds. I mean, it was, it was there from day one. And people were like, how long has she been wearing that? And I said, from the beginning. And they're like, no. And I'm like, yeah. I said, you, I said, you should really go back and actually read the comic. And, my, and Mark Grunewald, he used to tell me this was his favorite comic when it would come out. He, would, he, always, he really liked it. And uh, editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco, who created Silver Sable, he loved it. I was shocked because, you know, when you write a character that the editor-in-chief created, you kind of wonder, eh, they gonna, what's he going to think of it? And I was able to create all the backstory for Silver Sable that they never created. Um, they never told me I couldn't. I mean, really, I, I got you. I'm allowed to write a racist character. I'm allowed to write a, 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 a sadomasochist character. I've got a, a lesbian assassin with you know, body parts on her thing. I had an HIV positive, uh, you know, genius from from South Central. Um, I mean, that's my next question. Raul Cantino. Let's hear about Raul. Uh, you know, again, I, I, I was looking for more representation um, and I was upset at the time I was obsessed with the L.A. street gang uh, sort of scene. And I, I and the sort of the rap music of that particular era. Um, so I had done I, I must have read, you know, like 15, 20 different books and I was listening to all this music. But I didn't want him to be like one of those rapper guys. I wanted him to be the guy that tried to get out. Um, so I said, okay, the guys that are going to get out are going to be smart. Um, but again, I wanted to give him this little other thing. So I had him being HIV positive and I didn't want anybody to know why for a while. Um, so I kind of tried to play it cool. Um, you know, he got it from a, a intravenous drug use, but I didn't, I was kind of hoping that people would be, I wanted to keep people guessing about the characters. I always thought the books that I liked the most is when you're wondering about the secret parts of, of a character. Um, it's no fun when you, you know, Superman is so boring because you know, he's Clark, you know, is, you know, is he really Clark Kent or is he really, which one of it, are they both fake or, you know, which one is the thing, you know, too much. There's no dark secret about him, but my characters, because they were mine, I could come up with any goofy thing that I, I wanted. And I, I kind of tried to pull back in and do it, um, which was nice because when, when the artist was, uh, you know, running late, that's when they decided we do these little backup stories, which is where I took uh, the opportunity to do little histories of each of the characters to give them a little more um, oomph. Because, you, you know, I, I found myself wanting to do just basically write the Wildback characters. Um, and it's like, no, 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 this is her book. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of artists, when I guest starred them in other books, they would barely draw Silver Sable because they were so intrigued by, you know, whichever character they 
they happen like nobody liked Powell because you know he's just you know they only liked it when I had somebody punch him, you know. But they all love they love drawing Crippler, they love Chen, you know. And they're like, well, how gay can I make her? And I'm like, I don't even know how to respond to that. I said, you know, what what, is, what does that mean, you know, you know? But I I also you know I kind of tried to write Sable as being bi because I figured she must have been somewhat bi because she would do anything she had to do to get the job done. Um, but I was trying to hint that, you know, maybe she and Chen had had a little something, something going on at, at some, somewhere in the background there, you know, but, it's, you know, she was subtle, you know, because, you know. <laughs> I, I, I just have to also throw it back to the fact that Silver Sable also used to be a supermodel because I have clearly said many times that there are only three occupations that women were allowed to have in comic books, charter pilot, housewife. <laughs> And supermodel, like that's 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 it. That's all. That's all you're allowed to have. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and and, 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 and kind of has the uh, you know the whole thing with all of his ladies being charter pilots because his mother was one. Um, he is too. Oh, I I, I didn't he's know he's a pilot. He can fly. Um, but yeah, he he lo he loves a lady charter pilot. He really that's does. Funny. I never thought of that. <laughs> Um, but but and so uh, one of the few established characters, like really established characters, is you got to use Sandman. What made you choose him and bring him into the book? Well, he was just kind of oh, she used, had used him a lot, um, and he's he was a lot of fun to use. Um, I, I'm not thrilled with the way I, I you know I made him into a kind of a sap who is just sort of mooning over her all the time. But, you know, I, I tried you know to figure out better ways of using his powers, you know, because you know I always liked. You know, I, I love characters' powers, but I like how do we do something more interesting? And now, you know, with the the um, Marvel movies, I'm seeing these these people that are not you know comic book people like 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 I am figuring out really cool stuff to do with the characters that I never thought of, and I'm so jealous that I never thought to do that. You know, I was like, that's so cool. Why couldn't have I thought of that one? You know, it's like when when I saw uh, you know the Agents of Shield show came on, I was furious. Because they figured out how to do the show the way when when we did Nick Fury versus Shield, we basically destroyed Shield, and then he said, "Now you're going to do a book about Shield." I'm like, okay. And when Mark Grunewald said, "I want it to be like Mission Impossible," and I didn't really like that. So what I should have been doing is the way they did Agents of Shield. You know, that would have worked really cool in the comics, but we just never quite figured that part out. So I just sort of said, "We're going to start small, and then I'm going to basically just build it back up to." what I wanted to be because I want to see the helicarriers and I, <laughs> I want all the big fun toys. You did, you did uh, some crazy cool shit with Sandman's powers along the way though. You use them in really original fun ways, which is a lot of fun. Uh, this book really stands out. One of the things that, and, and I could point out about a thousand things. One of the things that really stood out is you brought in these kind of reprehensible characters, Powell being the biggest one. Uh, oh, he's uh, but you pair them off against some of the villains they face are literal Nazis, yeah. uh, eugenicists. There's a, there's a, you bring a televangelist in right at the beginning who turns yeah. out to be corrupt. <laughs> I got uh, in trouble for that one. They didn't like that. Was, some, I had a couple of religion. We're not all like that. I'm like, you're an idiot. I said, no character that we write is real. It's fiction. And it's not meant to represent everybody. It's like Chen is not representative of all lesbians. They're not all assassins. They're really not. You know, I mean, but, I don't know, potentially, but but <laughs> no, but that but people, you know, but and that's one of those problems is when you when you write 
uh, more marginalized characters, a lot of people think, well, that's representative of all. It's not. It's not at all. It's not meant. So I, I tried, you know, whenever I did a, a negative version of a character that, you know, from something that wasn't shown, I tried to have a positive version or have somebody mention something so that it, it, it didn't feel like I'm picking on this. You know, I'm not picking on preachers, although I should. Um, but, you know, I didn't want, the, you know, they, he was, this was a bad one, you know. Uh, I have to ask about one particular character who no one will remember. Well, uh, well I want to mention really quickly some of the edgy storylines. Silver Sable uh, kicking Doctor Doctor Doom's ass in Latveria is amazing. That was uh, she's she's dating uh, Jacques Girard, who's a, a black man uh, who ends up selling her uh, intimate photos to a publication. Uh, if I'm getting that storyline right, uh, there's a there's a pregnancy and an abortion storyline. You really push the edge on a lot of things for this time period. It's so impressive. Greg. Yeah, I, I don't know how I got away. I, the abortion one, they got very. They, it took them a mi- an issue or two to notice what I was doing because my th- thing was I'm I'm very pro-choice, um, and I I'm definitely one of those people. I I probably put way too much of my own personal politics and beliefs into some of the stuff I wrote, and you know I should have maybe dialed it back. But I felt let's do a story where She's being forced to have an abortion. So how would you like it if the shoe was on the other foot, if you were being forced to have this? So I did the story from that perspective um, because she was just told, oh, you're pregnant. I've just scheduled your abortion, you know, as if it doesn't matter what you have to say. Um, so I, I got to spend an issue of her trying to, mu- you know, muscle through, well, how do I feel about this? You know, because she's clearly not mother material. Um, but at the same time, because I had done the storyline of, her mother and how much her mother meant to her and you know what happened um it was very interesting to me but people were all people were writing don't let her have an abortion don't let her have an abortion and you know like i, I never meant for her to have one don't well this is right around the murphy about murphy brown craziness uh look up yes. that stuff if you're if you're interested i want to ask about a particular character who i bet uh you have not even thought about in 20 years oh, there in, in silver sable six and seven you introduce a one-off villain named cathode oh i knew it was going to be that one <laughs> She has the weirdest costume I've ever seen in a comic book ever. It is a, it's an Asian woman strapped to a machine wearing kind of like a metal bikini. It's, it's fully insane. I just wanted to toss that I, out. It's- I, you know, I, I don't design the characters. You know, I, I thought cathode sounds like a cool name, you know, and I don't remember the description, but I remember when I saw it, I went, huh. Okay, and I don't think Stephen Butler actually designed her. It was, I think, it was designed by this guy, very talented guy, but he did the, a fill-in issue. Um, and I remember going, oh, I can't wait to be done with this story. And I was like, what? I think what uh, I, I think the pencils that issue were Steve Carr and Daryl Skelton. Yeah, I, I don't know what. I mean, they did a nice job. I just, yeah, that you know, when I when people, I think, I think, <laughs> what the hell was this? Was I think you know, you know, and again, you know, I, I don't, I don't do drugs. I'm not smoking anything. You know, I, I wasn't, you know. This was, you know, this, I thought something up and this is the visual that came out and I worked at it and I look at it and I go, it's okay. It's, it's somehow like, remember that. <laughs> it's somehow like one of the most nineties things that Marvel ever produced. It does. It, 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 it has that like, you know, and nobody said it and nobody's ever said, you know, what were you thinking? This half naked woman, you know, I, that wasn't what I was thinking, you know, and sometimes you don't even know what's funny is you'll see it, you know, the art. And you don't think about whether somebody's naked or not. You think maybe they've got a bodysuit or something on, but you don't know until somebody's colored. And I didn't get to see the color because this is one of the few things I wrote that I didn't color. 
So I was very surprised to see that, you know, I thought she was wearing like a bodysuit or something. Nope. You, yep. know. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh my God, what the hell? I hope that this conversation will really spark a lot of modern interest for people who've never gone back and read this series. It was really edgy, really pushed the limits of things. And the 90s had things like this going on. Ellen DeGeneres coming out of the closet and Rosie O'Donnell and the Murphy Brown abortion story. Like things were really getting pushed. Uh, It's a very 90s series, but it was rare for me, at least as a fan to see Marvel kind of on the edge of that. And this is a series that represents that for me. I love this series. Yeah, me too. I I had the best time writing it. I mean, I just kind of wrote the stuff I wanted to read and I thought was important to get out there. And I'm, I'm still surprised that, you know, Tom DeFalco, there was not one moment. It was the abortion scene. He goes, hey, what are you going to do? You can't have her. And I said, I'm not, I'm not. Trust me, trust me. And he didn't make me tell him the ending. I just said, don't worry. I won't embarrass you. And he went, okay. And I went, wow, I can't believe, you know, he trusted me on on that. And, you know, Mark, I never got anything but nice support on all this stuff. And I, I, I said, did they read any of this? You know, because, you know, you did read the... Uh, the, the crossover that we did with Tara Rink and, and, and uh, with, with the penis God, you know? Yes. We didn't even talk about Priapus. <laughs> no, nobody knew what we were doing. It's like, we were got to the end. And then, you know, one of my other bosses, Bob Budiansky, he goes, is this what I think it is? And we went, what do you think it is? And he explained and went, yes, it is. And he goes, you've been doing this for six issues. And we're like, yeah. Um, Cause the thing is at the time, me, D.G. Chichester, who wrote Terror Inc., and Marcus McLaurin, who wrote uh, Cage, we were all working with Clive Barker on the Hellraiser, Nightbreed, and, and Jihad. And, you know, Clive, you know, Clive is like a super gentlemanly guy. He's so wonderful. But, you know, he's very into very peculiar, sexy stuff. You know, he finds ugly monsters and, and stuff uh, very sexy. And so we were we were in this sort of mode of, you know, trying to be very Clive Barker about stuff and bringing, you know, sex into places it's not necessarily supposed to be. Um, and, and, and so we were like, let's see how far we can push this. And, you know, we were being very, we thought we were being very, nobody said a word. Nobody had any idea. They're like, his name is Priapus. Are you kidding me? You know, um, you know, I mean, there was a scene, you know, at Silver Sable has an orgasm on fucking panel. I mean, Really? You know, and it's like later they're like, um, is what's happening what I think is happening? And I'm like, I don't know what, what are you thinking is happening? He goes, it looks like she might be having an orgasm. I'm like, yeah, that's what she's having. She's like, oh my God, how do we, and I'm like, I don't know. Nobody caught it. And I think, I think the comics code is even on those books. Maybe. I'm not sure if that's after the code got pulled off, but you know, really? And for those that want to look up Priapus, the referenced issues are uh, Terror Inc. This is from 93. Terror Inc. 10 and 11. Cage, which is uh, Luke Cage, but this yeah. series, which is called Cage. Cage number 15. Silver Sable 13. And then it goes back through the books one more time. It's incredible. Uh, among the topics we did not bring up today is the Crippler-Lorna romance, which is <laughs> uh, the uh, the character Letitia. Uh, and uh, and my one of my favorite ones of your creations, although she's kind of in the background, uh, is the character Lightbright, uh, who I'm actually going to be doing a focused like Patreon that. episode around. Uh, I, li- I love Lightbright. Well, we were supposed to actually do an Intruders series. So that that was approved. We were ready to go you know, which was, you know, um, Sandman and Finn and Lightbright and uh, I think uh, Paladin and 
and stuff. But it, you know, when they finally said, "Oh, Silver Sable's not selling as many copies as we'd like," which was about forty thousand copies at the time. Today, they would love to have those numbers. Um, what they really wanted was they wanted me to stop writing Silver Sable and go write anything else that they could make a number one out of. And I said, I'm not doing that. I love this book. And, you know, so I was pissed when they, they canceled it. And after they canceled that, they realized they probably shouldn't have because it was still making more money than some of the other books that they brought out that were new. Um, so, yeah, so the intruders went bye-bye. But what's even funnier about this, here's another good story. You'll love this. So in, uh, in Ghost Rider, which I was coloring, Howard Mackey created this group called The Next Wave. Yes. And it was this little mercenary group. They were based on Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, and Rob Liefeld after they had gone to Image. Oh, so it, you know, because they were trying to poach all of our all the Marvel guys and stuff. So there was like a friend. It was a friendly little jab. But the way um, the artists had drawn those characters, I said, like, these guys are really cool. You know, I mean, they're a mercenary group. They're all about money. And I thought I want to bring them into Silver Sable. So I so they came. And with these characters, these characters are named Agent X, Snare, and Turk. Yeah, this so is not brought, uh, this is not the same Warren Ellis next wave for me. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah it's different. <laughs> so I brought them into Silver Sable because I thought they would try to poach Sandman. So there's that storyline when they bring him in. But when they did, I said, "Geez, you know, my buddy Eric Larson, he hasn't been represented." So I said, "I know. I'll just create a character called Finn." <laughs> And all he likes to do is hit. Um, so I, you know, I had such a good time with them. I was like, God, I'd, I'd actually like to do a, a book with these guys because they were it, they were a fun kind of group. And it's you know when you base them on the personalities of people you actually know, um, it was a lot of fun. You know, and again, the way that they were drawn, they, I, they were taken very seriously. They, it wasn't meant as a as, as a, a, a punch in the nuts to those guys at all because we all were very were friendly with those. It was just like meant as fun. But that's where Finn came from. So, and then I decided, well, I kind of like Finn. <laughs> he became a little more of a character just, and Maneater, that was the other one. Yeah, yeah. Maneater, the tiger guy. Yeah, the tiger uh, the guy. Next, the next wave guys you just referenced made an appearance in the 2018-2019 series Weapon X, uh, volume three, oh, really? 24 and 25. We'll talk about them another time, but for anyone That's who wants fun. to. Yeah, it's, your comics should be fun. You know, that, you know, that was my goal was to have some fun. So bringing, you know, I'm, there's, you know, if, if you ever look at, the first arc of Nightbreed after um, the the movie adaptation that my friend D.D. Chichester wrote, I am the bad guy in 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 there. It's a character called Alan Reitgrig, and he looks, and Brett Blevins drew it, and he looks exactly the way I looked at that time. Um, and it, it's just, people are like, oh my God, you let somebody do that? I'm like, I think it's great. Brett Blevins drawing me for like four or five issues in comic book? So yeah, you look, all these little connecting tissues. It's you know. so great to hear about uh, this kind of creative highlights at Marvel at the time. I, I could ask you a thousand questions and maybe I need to have you back on again, Greg, because I want to pick your brain. Oh, anytime, anytime, things. it'd be fun. Uh, so everybody go check out the Silver Sable series. It's wonderful. Let us know what you think. It's really, fun. really incredible. I loved rereading it for this. Uh, Demanda, do you have anything you want to say about Silver Sable, what she means to you before anything, we start this interview? I, I mean... So as at like as a kid, uh, I got I got into uh, comics through the trading card series. So you know the little card that I showed earlier from the second wave. Um, again, I still have it back from 1991. Um, that introduced me to that card series. Introduced me to a lot of characters, and Silver Sable was uh, 
Because again, I didn't know anything about any characters at that time. So I saw her and I was like, she looks cool. Like, I want to be her. Like, this jacket is cool. You know, she's got this whole, like, silver aesthetic. Um, And I just want to say, like, thanks for, like, making her cool and me wanting to read more comics. Because I I was, I mean, if you can see my background, like, I'm a big X-Men person. So Silver Sable is one of the few characters outside of x-men that like i really clung to and really read yeah i i I loved every second of her when you know when tom and uh, ron did her and and spider-man and even when david michelinie was writing her and peter david actually i think peter david created the foreigner um but it was fun to like read all that stuff and then pull it in and say okay how do i add to the the stuff but yeah she was a blast i i would if they called me and said hey we want to do some more silver stable i would do that in a heartbeat um because i still have stories yeah. i didn't get to do <laughs> well and and when you were talking about how like you know you never wanted her to be drawn super sexy but i mean i remember reading it being like oh no she's she's like hot though like she she does it and the fact that that was a conscious decision of being like don't draw her like overly sexy but it still came across just kind of speaks volumes about like how artists especially in comic books draw like like how does it they create the art that we all consume well, a lot of a lot of people they basically draw the same figure over and over, and I I really hate that. Um, I, I you know people we all come in different shapes, you know, and that's kind of what I wanted. You know, I kept you know I kept describing. I mean, I really described the characters. So if you look at a lot of the female characters in Silver Sable, they are very different body shapes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I again, you know, I I used to you know we used to have there's an artist named Mark Beecham um, that you may be familiar with. He drew a lot of Spider Man, but we had to do a lot of blacking out because he basically drew very naked people bent over and crotches and stuff. And a lot of artists at that in the nineties, they were basically drawing, you know, centerfolds and stuff and then putting costumes on them. And I said, nobody stands like that. And I said, I don't want to see silver stable standing there, you know, with, with bent with her bent over ass in the foreground, somehow twisting her torso. She can't see with her cleavage sticking out. I was like, no, that that's just looks stupid and that is not that character you know she's sexy just because she's not you know out there trying to be sexy i said but i said there will come a cup a time when she's purposely trying to be seductive and then you can fucking go for it but <laughs> until until that point you know that's not the it's just it's just not the character it's like you know sue storm of, of a fantastic Four. she's not a sex pot she's a mom She's also one of the most dangerous women out there. She can stick a bubble in you and explode you. Uh, you know, um, she's very smart, but you know, she's not. You know, not, not just because you're a, a woman doesn't mean you do that. Same, you know, same thing with the guys. You know, uh, you know, it's like to, to the amount of times you know, during that image period where you'd write a whole sequence of something happening and you'd get a guy, a person standing there. That there's no. There are multiple moments in Silver Sable where she calls people out on their sexism as well. But we do have to transition onto our review. Uh, uh, I thought I could talk about this series for another hour. I love it so much. Now, in our last episode, we had the chance to review X-Men number 62 with uh, the incredible artist Val Merrick. Uh, Here we are with X-Men 63. As I mentioned earlier, it's called War in the World Below. Uh, This is from the end of 1969, and we are getting right close to the end. In fact, after this, Neil Adams only has one more issue that he pencils. Uh, and uh, and we're getting ready to uh, have the first appearance of Sunfire, the revelation that Professor X is alive, and then it all kind of just wraps up after that. Uh, this issue was a Roy Thomas, Neil Adams collaboration, Tom Palmer on inks, Sam Rosen on letters, 
Uh, Stan Lee is the editor. Leading up to this, the X-Men just fought Sauron. Uh, he disappeared and they kind of followed him and ended up in the Savage Land. That's kind of all you need. There's a lot of backup before that, but that's kind of all you need here. So they've landed in the Savage Land. Magneto has been believed dead for a long time. He is now posing as a man called the Creator. He's wearing a bizarre costume that's all it's like a yellow jumpsuit with some tech that's like taking all of his magnetic powers and channeling it into a jetpack for some reason. He's using alien machines to create mutants or mutates uh, out of some of the local tribesmen who they keep calling things like savages, which is problematic, obviously, from a 2022 lens. Last issue, he convinced the angel who did not know he was Magneto, that he was a good guy. He's like, basically, I'm Professor X. I'm here creating my own team of oppressed, like superpowered people in the savage land. Uh, Kesar's running around with Zabu and he knows like the, 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 uh, the Savage Land is almost in like a civil war because the Swamp Men have allied themselves with uh, with the creator, again, who is Magneto. Uh, so that's kind of where things leave off. At the very end of the last issue, Magneto like opens a cupboard and his fashion, his, his uh, helmet is there and he makes a weird comment about fashion and you're like, oh no, it's Magneto. Uh, so that leads us into X-Men number 63. Uh, let's start out with this cover. It, it has the caption, The Triumph of Magneto. Uh, Magneto is opening some sort of Demanda, this is like the ultimate drag queen entrance for you. There's like a golden egg opening, <laughs> light is pouring I, out. I mean, and and the the unmistakable silhouette of a woman with the 60s flip hairdo. <laughs> like it's it is it's the perfect entrance. I mean, if I can have that kind of entrance every time. That would be incredible. And the the X-Men Beast is in the most unnatural pose on the ground. I don't even want to try to replicate it. Iceman is bowing down before this woman. Scott, Scott is like leg back, back arched, head up while firing his anoptic blast into the sky. And Kazar looks like he's like bowing before her as well. Uh, this is a bizarre set of positions for these guys. It's a weird cover. Yeah, but, but Iceman so makes sense. <laughs> because you know we will later discover that, that he is gay so you know if it's a drag queen coming out of, of i mean you know, it, you know, it is, then you know it's, it's like true. oh my, my future <laughs> um but, but also it's it's so weird because like it also looks very like it's gene in there because that's definitely like sort of her silhouette um but like you know, we find out later, like, who this female character is, but, like, she doesn't look anything like that. No. So it's sort of like... It looks like a, it looks like a silhouette of Dory Evans, like the uh, Human Torch's girlfriend from the Fantastic Four. Yeah. But, but, but also... <laughs> I mean, check out um, the hips, though, on this. Yeah. And, you know, that's not, like, something that they knew... They, knew, they used to draw them very, sort of, you know, boyish, but, you know, she's got, like, hips... Yeah, and it's it's just very. I mean, I mean, you can tell that like the the silhouette is sort of uh, exaggerated, so that way you know that it's a female. Because again, if because we you know we've already said like this is going to be Lorelai. Um, like if they just did the big hair because she has so much hair, like we wouldn't see any of that shape at all, obviously. Yeah. So it's like I get it, but it's also just like what it. I mean, it just goes to shit. Like covers on comics, like they never. <laughs> they never really give you what actually is happening in the book. Well, the covers oh. are done uh, sometimes way ahead. So mm -hmm. they may have done this cover before there was, you know, a story. 
They, they, you know, they literally, they said, well, you know, draw the X-Men, you know, having a problem with something opening up with some girl inside, you know, and, and that's, that's, so they, they make it as generic as possible. You know, you've got, it could be anything, you know? Yeah, uh, true. So yeah, it's, it's, I'm not even sure. Is that, is this a Neil Adams cover? Uh, I believe it is actually. I'll, I'll double. Yeah. 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 If you look at the bottom right corner, it says Adams and Palmer. Yeah. So, but yeah, so, I mean, we did a lot of covers, you know, not knowing exactly what the story might be. So you kind of had to do this sort of weird generic that this will cover it. And sometimes, you know, what was on the cover had nothing to do with what was inside. Absolutely. You know? And I, I always, I hate that. I just, and we've seen I that a few times, go back to like the Eric, the red appearance where like Hagar, the horribles on the cover. And it's a totally different character inside. Right. <laughs> like what? Uh, now in this issue, I get it. I'm going to give a little context quickly. Magneto created the Savage Land Mutates, who's like the third or fourth team the X-Men have ever faced. These are some iconic but easily forgettable characters, including uh, who's probably most well-remembered, uh, Brainchild, but we have characters like Barbarous and uh, Gaza and Piper, who's not in this issue, Equilibrius, who's not in this issue, and Lupo. And we'll talk more about them as we get to them. In this, uh, in this issue, we have the first appearance of Lorelai. Demanda and I did an hour-long episode about Lorelai for the Patreon channel, which has now been released uh, for the public uh, episode. So go back and listen. We love her. We'll get to her in a little while. The other thing that's really fascinating about X-Men 62, Angel arrives in the Savage Land and gets attacked by a bunch of pterodactyls and he crashes on the ground and Magneto like saved his life, but also redesigned his costume. So <laughs> Angel is in a, uh, in a new suit designed by Magneto. It is one of his iconic costumes with its, uh, it's the... Uh, the uh, the yellow halo on the chest, white down the middle, blue down the sides. It's a great look for him. I love this. I mean, it's one hundred percent an upgrade from his like terrible one that Gene did for him. The quote fashion model. Gene <laughs> sometimes choices, but it's it's interesting how like you know some sometimes characters get these like upgrades from you know from you, you know and then and then it becomes their iconic looks like. Uh, you know, Psylocke's most iconic costume from when she was first turned uh, into a Japanese woman. That's from the Mandarin. Like, girl, that's, that's terrible. Like, that's, that's your villain costume. Uh, Lorna has worn, like, has she ever, the only costume I really feel like she's ever designed for herself was when she wore the, the yellow, uh, like, swimsuit. Other than that, I think everyone has given her... Mesmero designed her first one, so there's yes. a, there's some fashion sense. <laughs> it's it's just, it's just interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, thinking about like the creation of comic book characters, it's like obviously, you know, people are just like, oh, you know, I really like this look, but it's like when they come up with the how in story they get these looks, it's like, mm, I don't know if I'd wear this look that this villain has like forced me to wear. This issue has some amazing moments and some really ridiculous one-liners. Uh, so we'll get through, I'm going to cover the first five pages quickly. Magneto, in a really beautiful image, it's not easy to draw someone's like underface like that. <laughs> Neil Adams does a good job in this, uh, in this opening panel. Magneto has sent Angel out to find the X-Men and he does not know that he is Magneto. Magneto's also sent the Savage Land Mutates and the Swamp Men to follow Angel so that they can fight the X-Men. So he's busy designing uh, who he calls his ultimate mutant. Eventually in the Defenders, he will design uh, a Alpha, the ultimate mutant, who's an actual character. But right now he's designing Lorelei. Uh, Angel's approaching the X-Men and they don't recognize him. They think he's back uh, in the States and he's in a new costume. So they're like, it can't be Angel. Kazar's like, I'm going to go find out. Like, you guys can wait here if you want. 
He actually says, the X-Men can watch, the X-Men can wait. That is not the way of Kesar. And then he snaps a tree off in half, hits Angel <laughs> with it while saying, and I don't know what the fuck this means, the law of the jungle says, he who waits for the culprit to speak shall never hear the babbling brook. What the fuck? <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know what that means. But he knocks Angel down. The X-Men are like, oh, it really is Angel. Uh, Zabu is there. Uh, Angel tries to tell them what happened. Again, he doesn't know that it's Magneto that is back there. But then suddenly uh, the Savage Land mutates attack. Gaza, who is a blind character who has like some enhanced strength and some like daredevil radar stuff attacks amphibious attacks he's like if toad were a toad he's like an actual frogman uh and there's a couple of pretty fascinating little moments as they are overwhelmed by these teammates so amphibious jumps on beasts back and says ha huh, so may one beast fell another of that name uh which is kind of cute he's like a little shakespearean frog i kind of like this guy <laughs> uh greg do you want to keep us going tell us what happens in the next few pages uh, well, I mean, the one thing I got, you know, I got to mention this Neil Adams, Tom Palmer art, um, you know, they were a phenomenal combination. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that upshot that, uh, that of the splash page, Neil Adams pulled that shot off all the time. You know, he was, that was this thing. He was so known for these crazy angles and this, you know, uh, much more realistic uh, looking faces and, and art and this sort of over dramatic, uh, you know, body language. Um, and Neil Adams was actually the first artist that I noticed because the, the very first comic I ever bought was, the, it was a Batman comic. I think it was Detective Comics and it was featuring Two-Face. It was called Half and Evil. Um, and I just remember going, wow, what is this? So when I, you know, got to Marvel and, and you know, people were like, oh, Jack Kirby. And I'm like, Kirby, but Neil Adams. Um, so, you know, I, I went back and devoured these issues because, you know, this Neil Adams uh, artwork and I didn't realize who Tom Palmer was at the time, you know, until I started working with Mark Rumwell. Oh, and I'm working with Tom Palmer. So Tom would tell me stories about all this. And Tom Palmer is the colorist. Yeah. So you'll kind of notice the coloring is so much better and different than it is on a lot of other comics because Tom Tom was a a painter as well. So he had figured out not really on on the comic that we're looking at because it's that reprint where they redid it. But he'd figured out how to use the this this color process to really make stuff look so much better than it did with the typical colorist. Because we used, you know, the way we were taught was you color the characters are normal colors, and then you add a background that lets them pop, which leads to sort of dull looking comics. But when you look yeah, at, yeah. you know, this, you know, when you just sort of page through it, you know, you see uh, some really incredible uh, color and and you know just you know, it's just vibrant and it it, just, it draws you into the book. So I, I had to bring uh, the art of this because um, it's it's really fantastic. It's really great. I also forgot to mention page five. They mentioned something called an XKE. They say he packs the wallop of a supercharged XKE. I had to look this up. Apparently, that's just a fancy car in the 60s. So oh, really? Is that what that is? Yeah. If anyone's wondering what that reference was. Uh, but keep us going, Greg. You know, page six, you know, it's, you know, more, more more fun fighting, you know, cause you got to have these fight scenes in there and, you know, okay, now do you see the truth? Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> but then when, you know, I, I love, you get to page seven and it's this big all out battle. Uh, and, and Tom Palmer decides he's going to knock it out in blue, um, which is really striking, you know, and it, it kind of reminds me of 
you know, if, if you remember in Dark Knight Returns where you'd have this, suddenly you'd have a splash page that was just really effective. Um, and that's what this is. And had he colored it regular, you wouldn't have stopped for a second to really look at it. Um, but, you know, I like it. But again, oh man, the Kazar dialogue. Kazar needs no help, X-Man. <laughs> you know, his word is law. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, but, you know, they keep fighting until uh, until Angel, you know, kind of starts to realize, oh, you know, maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe I've been on the wrong side. Um, and then he decides, well, I'll help them, you know, and go into the and then he breaks into the lair, um, which is this is this is where I like again the, the color in here is great. It's like, you know, I love these discovery scenes. Oh, my God, you're actually Magneto. How the hell did he not know this was Magneto? I he's don't never, understand. He's never seen him without his helmet off. <laughs> really I, i'm sorry if, if i put a hel you put a helmet on i bet you you know you're, everybody's going to recognize you with or without the, i mean you could see his whole face you know it, it's ridiculous i just like are you so kidding? so as as a cosplayer i'm going to be real honest with you and also when people have like you know in the pandemic sometimes you really don't i'm not gonna lie like sometimes you really don't recognize people when they have like weird things on their face because you're just not used to seeing them in that context like to like to be honest like you'll be at a convention and someone will come up to you and just start talking to you like uh-huh and they're like oh wait yeah i totally met you at that convention like wherever i go it also it, it happened also angel recently got hypnotized by a pterodactyl man and then slashed by some more pterodactyls so maybe okay. he's just not at his best here that's a good that's a good point you know <laughs> But it's like, you know, I, I can you know, like when I read this, I'm like, how the hell did he not know who this guy was in the first? How is this all a surprise? What kind of a dumbass is Angel? That's, this, that's what I. Well, he is also kind of a dumbass. You know, that's all I could think of, you know, but, you know, the, I'm like, well, the artwork is really awesome. You know, this is Magneto's worst costume. It's awful. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I, I can't believe Neil Adams designed that. It's, it is, it's like, it, it's like, it's the ugliest jumpsuit, ugliest color. It's everything about it is just, would you? Nobody would cosplay as that in a million years. No, but no. but now maybe it's like, hey, do you want to be wear the ugliest suit ever? I mean, it it could be a theme. It could be a thing. I want a whole team of Magnetos. One in like his long, like oh, yeah. big M purple thing. Oh, oh first, first of all, like the, like full side titties, Magneto. I I would <laughs> if someone if someone did that. Like, oh, like Nerdalant cosplay. If you're listening to this, get your side titties out. That's pretty funny. <laughs> um, but you know, I love you know, I love when you finally get the you know, you finally you know, you, you know. I, then my favorite is what what did they call it in in the Incredibles? Uh, uh, when when you get the villain telling his whole story that oh, know, the, when they're monologuing, monologuing, monologuing yeah. <laughs> So, you know, he starts monologuing and I'm like, okay, now this is kind of interesting. You know, how did you fucking survive, you know, this thing that we thought you were dead? And I'm like, I actually wanted to see more of, of this. Um, and and the time, the time they thought he was dead, it's because Toad kicked him out of a ship, which is amazing. I know. Really? That's what happened? Okay. Um, but, you know, I, I'm fascinated, you know, I, I'm fascinated with this whole idea that, you know, he tunneled his way through and, and survived and, and, you know, but I want more, I want more of that story and, and not you know, his designing, you know, costumes for Angel. Yeah. Um, or like the colonialism of like capturing swamp savages and turning them into people who will serve you. Ugh. Yeah. And you're, I'm, you're, well, you know, he's a bad guy. So, you know, that's, you know, acceptable. You know, I mean, I, I wrote characters that did all kinds of horrifying, you know, things, but you know, it's the bad guy. 
you know, it's okay. You know, we were actually told, you know, we don't want people smoking unless they're the bad guy. I'm like, really? You know, <laughs> I'm sorry. The thing smokes, Nick Fury smokes, you know, most of my bad guys didn't actually, I don't think I had most of very many bad guys smoking, but yeah, they, you know, there is an upcoming story, by the way, and I mentioned this last time, where Magneto wears this version of Angel's costume because he's trying to hide. Uh, we'll get to that at another podcast review, but you get to see Magneto in this costume in the future. You know, I try to imagine uh, uh, um, Ian McKellen wearing, you know, this costume as because <laughs> <laughs> he would be, you know, Ian McKellen. He's game for anything. You know, he'll wear, he'll do, he'll do any crazy thing. You know, it's like, I love to see, you know, because I could see him actually pulling off, you know, this dialogue. Magneto has this bizarre mechanical contraption that encompasses his chest and goes down on his arms. And later in this issue, he says that it's like draining his magnetic power. Yeah. And so he can't use his power to fight the other mutants. I don't know why that's necessary. It doesn't really explain it. It says why he's not at full capacity, but it doesn't ever tell you why. Well, because uh, they, that's the way they needed the story to go. So we went, I, was, I, I was gonna say that, that that's that's, that's how we did stuff. Trying to make sense, take a shot and move on. Like his sperm count was down, and right. <laughs> but you know, going back to like you know when you had to write you know Marvel Universe entries, this is the kind of stupid stuff you had to figure out. How do I make this sound plausible? You know, when you would write the entry, you know, it's like you know how does this work? You know, it's like Elliot Brown would have to you know figure out how these contraptions, you know, all this Kirby machinery work and he would figure it out and it would say, oh, that sounds plausible. Yeah, but some yeah, stuff yeah. you just can't, you know. He has all the tech design stuff. It's crazy. Uh, Demanda, take us through 11 through 15 for us. Sure. So, so, yeah, so in 11, we found out that he's like, you know, he tunneled through to get the Savage Land and, oh, the thing's opening and what is it? No, it can't be. As though, it, it, is, is he shocked by boobs? I don't understand what Angel <laughs> is is so shocked about um so uh the next page you know the boys are like yeah let's go so i mean it, it's th this is all kind of boring like the boys are all like let's go they're gonna break through like the fortress or whatever um so, pause for a moment beast tells kesar you would make even buster crab look to his laurels anyone know who buster crab is no yeah this is an old Hollywood actor from the 30s, 40s, 50s, who was like an Olympian who became an actor and he played Tarzan in the first Tarzan movie. Oh yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, I had to, I was like- Rogers oh, or Flash Gordon that he was, he was. He was Flash Gordon as well. Uh -huh. But he was a handsome man. Yeah, he was a handsome uh, man, I looked him up. I'm like, I, well done, sir. <laughs> yeah, he, um, was a, he was a handsome man. <laughs> um, so so, you know, so they, they break through the defenses, then Lupo comes in. Sends the wolves and uh, Kazar calls Zabu, who comes in to fight the wolves. My favorite thing is on page 13 that wolf who looks so scared. <laughs> but it, it so, so, anyway, so then Zabu scares things. So, my favorite whole thing in this entire issue is we get to page 14 and all of a sudden there's Gene. Where has Gene been this whole time in the issue? I even looked back to see if they put her in the background anywhere. They did not. She literally does not show up until page 14, but has apparently been there the whole time. She's on two and three in the group shots. Is she? I was like... <laughs> when they first see Angel, she's, she. I mean, she's kind of in the background, but she is present. Alex and Lorna stayed behind, but Jean is there. Again, I'm like, I'm like, where is she? Oh, excuse me. You're right. She is on page four. Oh, but she, she does show up finally. 
But, but like in any of the battle scenes, she's not there. She's not there. She's obviously hiding in a force bubble. Like she's, um, which is just so, anyway, I'm like, Gene, you're better than this. Um, well, you, know, you gotta understand that the writers didn't necessarily, back then, you know, they were doing a lot of stuff plot style. So they would write, the X-Men are fighting these characters and then it would be up to, you know, Neil or whoever was drawing it to do it. And I don't know, maybe Neil didn't have any ideas what to do with her. So he just stuck her in the background. You know, right. so I, when, when I would write stuff, I would try to make sure that everybody had something to do. Um, but if you didn't do that, uh, you were left to, you know, the artists, you know, because when I did write stuff, plasma, it was a shock what they would not do. And, you know, which character they decide, well, I, I like to draw this character. I want to have them. I'm like, that's the least important part of my story. This is my fault for not, you know, making it happen. So it's, it's kind of hard to say. I, I don't know what kind of a plot Roy wrote. You know, it was definitely way more than like a Stan Lee plot, you know, which would be, well, the X-Men go here and they find out Magneto's this and that's the end of it. But he may he may not have given her much to do. So Neil may have just said, I don't fucking like drawing her anyway. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely fair. But I'm glad uh, she's here finally. Yeah, because, you know, it's fun to draw the angel. You know, it's fun to draw the beast doing stuff. All the, you know, Kazar, you know, Buster Crab stuff. Um, but it's not, so, you know, what's she doing? And she's got that stupid costume. Green you know, <laughs> dress. Stupid dress. Not you know. the green dress. Uh, oh my goodness. You know, um, but everybody else is a little more fun to, to draw. So it may just have been, he didn't have anything to think of or he didn't, didn't care. Be, because uh, she, the, the reason I bring it up is because she does become a plot point later in the story. And so it's like, oh wait, yeah, we forgot Jean is around. So we better start like, putting her in some more of these group scenes so people don't forget that she's there. Um, Page 14 is great, though. Just like a male to think that only men... Only what? Exactly. Only he can carry a a crisis. Yeah, when she finally gets to do something. Um, But also, I just want to talk about how creepy Brainchild looks on page 14, and he makes it clear that I don't speak when, unless spoken to, and I'm only going to say this one little thing, this very cryptic message to you, Amphibious. And then Phibius then like jumps on this one brick to make the wall fall down. And it's all very like, ooh, Brainchild is such a good plotter. Like, uh, we haven't been able to make it work timing wise yet, but Danny Laura and I are going to do an episode on Brainchild, who is <laughs> this creepy little large headed man creature with a huge brain. This he's so gross in every one of his appearances across all of chronology. He's obsessed with like proving he's like the biggest man. He's obsessed with like mutating Storm and like making her do his bidding. But this 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 single image of him by Neil Adams with the colors over it, he's got this glowing purple eyes in the dark, and he looks like an alien, and he's so scary. It he's really is awful. Very very it's great, great though. It's just so it's a great. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Some of this art, you just go, wow, that's so cool. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Um, Um, Oh, go ahead. Then Jean finally gets to do something, and she holds the bricks up, and uh, (laughs) and then Beast and Cyclops take out the... uh, And then Iceman gets to take out Amphibious and Brainchild. This is another ridiculous one-liner. Beast grabs Amphibious by the foot and says, a frog in the hand, my friend, is worth a brain in the bush. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> Good Lord. I don't understand. Uh, this dialogue as- got so much better once Claremont got a hold of him. <laughs> you know. So they, they beat him up. Beast also, here's another topical reference. Beast also calls Amphibious a refugee from a Tennille woodcut. 
any any idea what this is? There's an old British artist named John Tennille who is known for doing uh, wooden cutouts of Alice in Wonderland cartoon characters. Wow, that's like. Cut. This is like old, obscure, antique shop kind of shit. And it makes sense. If you look up uh, John Tennille and his Alice in Wonderland art, then you'll understand what this reference is. It's kind of fascinating. That's cool. I, I like that stuff, though. So the uh, the door opens and Magneto's like, in his terrible costume. He's got his cape <laughs> back on. And he's like, I will destroy you because I have the most powerful newborn little baby girl behind me. I just made her myself. And he opens the door and he says, I call her Lorelei. Now, Lorelei is a myth from like Bavarian legend. I'm not going to go deep into it because Demanda and I do a deep cut on this character and talk all about where this legend comes from. But basically, he calls her a swamp savage. Uh, she is wearing... Demand, I'll let you describe Lorelai's costume for us. I mean, her look is actually really cute. It's so-, um, <laughs> so, so first of all, she's got, she's got hair for days, uh, just laid perfectly, this platinum gorgeousness. It's just this very flowy, very sheer, very see-through dress with this, like, purple bodice thing that holds the boobs up, but there's still a boob window because... We have to know that she has boobs because as though the sheer costume weren't enough, we need to emphasize that there are boobs there. And we're talking like 60 pounds of hair. Good Lord. And she has no pupils and like Winifred Sanderson teeth as she goes. And all the boys are like, oh, I love you. and, and, And the thing is that she's she's constantly drawn with like her mouth sort of parted open like that, like always. And I learned in dance class. Uh, that you, when you're dancing and you want to be sexy, you keep your mouth open because that makes boys think of sex. Like that's literally what they told us in dance class. Um, obviously she was telling like the other girls in class and I was just listening, being like, "Uh uh-huh, I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm taking that note. Um, but if I, if I do this constantly. No, no, it's it's, (laughs) it's, not like that. It's 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 more like there this. Oh, just like, oh, oh. That's and, it. And, that's it. You've got that. And the thing is, that, like, I, I look at myself in pictures, and I notice that I now subconsciously do that in photos. And there was one time a photographer was like, "Okay, can you give me something other than blow up doll mouth?" And I was like, "How rude! You're right, but how rude!" So again, Magneto does not have access to his power for some inexplicable reason because he's wearing this nonsense costume. The boys are being mind controlled, but Jean is not because Lorelai's powers don't work on girls. So Jean grabs a table with her telekinesis and throws it at the machine that's been powering all the mutates up. But Magneto zaps it out of the air because he's got little metal guns connected to some wires on his costume. I don't know why. And then Jean tries to uh, tries to hit Magneto with a portion of the machine, but he has a jetpack. Oh no! And he flies out of the way. And then uh, he pulls out a gun and he's like, now you're done for. But Gene, who is super smart and is easily our star player in this issue, besides KSR when he hits Angel out of the sky with a broken tree, which is my other favorite moment. Uh, Gene opens the visor on Scott's uh, optic blast and it goes off and it uh, she aims it at Magneto's guns. And then she aims it at the machine. So it's broken. And Magneto is like, oh no, I'm going to die. And he like, is on his knees screaming about how it's too late and the the whole like village is going to self-destruct and the x-men just run away and magneto survives next to appear in the gregory wright colored series x-men and the hidden years chronologically which is where magneto (laughs) shows up next 
still wearing this terrible costume and going through all kinds of hijinks, which we will get to on the podcast eventually. So <laughs> there's a moment where they're like soliloquizing because they're at the end. Cyclops says, let's get out of here, X-Men, before this place goes up in flames. We made it, but there's not much hope for Magneto. This time, I think he died with his dream, his twisted, tortured vision of a world ruled by evil mutants. And uh, Kesar notes uh, that the Savage Land mutates are just changing back into simple swamp savages. We get this awful image of like Brainchild's face like growing longer as his his beard it, it, is gone. And it, is it Brainchild or is it Amphibious turning back human? Oh, it's Amphibious. You can see like the green outline on his face. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And and Lorelai, <laughs> Lorelai has got two little tears coming down her cheeks because she's so sad. <laughs> and uh, as mutants, they'd have been outcasts in a society that hated them. They'll be happier when they're back to normal, Cyclops says. And Kesar says, will they? Who could be happier to lose vast powers from uh, which set them apart from other men? And all the X-Men are like, we'd be happier without our powers. And I'm like, fuck you, X-Men. You don't know. Which is, which is also <laughs> like, so uh, again, reading this, and th- this is the last thing before I really do need to, need to go. But like, that actually really made me mad because as we know later in X-Men lore, X-Men are the ones being like, no, we don't want our powers to go away. We we want to be mutants. We like being mutants. And so, like, this was a, a very, like, is very, is very weird to see in this context of them being like, oh no, we would gladly give up our powers to be normal. And I'm like, ew, gross. This uh this issue is a blast. My favorite part is the Lorelei of it all. So again, <laughs> I'll reference the Lorelei episode. We dig deep on her. We love her. She's wonderful. Uh, as we are wrapping up, uh, Greg, do you have any final thoughts on this issue? I, we have to go back to the blow-up doll face. We're just respecting <laughs> her. You know, I, 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 I can't let this go. When I, I, I used, to, when I was just writing comics, after I'd, I'd left Marvel and I was writing comics, I had artists would come to my house and I would try to teach them how to tell stories better and, and other stuff if they, when they were working with me. And and I won't tell you the purchase of this artist's name, but an artist came over and Every time he tried to draw a, a sexy woman, he, he would draw the blow-up doll face on them. You know, this, you know, and I finally had had enough. And I said, I'm, I'm now going to be blunt. And I, I, I pointed out exactly what it was and I showed him a picture and, and I thought he was going to die, you know, because after that, we sat there looking through comics and seeing how often we saw the blow-up doll face um, because a lot of artists, they don't know how to draw actual expressions on people's faces you know um kevin mcguire was fantastic at it when he did uh, justice league you know that was the big thing you know all these great faces but you know it's funny if you go back and look you'll see so many you know not top artists not like neil adams doesn't do that but you'll see that the the, the blow-up doll thing so when when demanda mentioned that i was like oh my god this this was a big part of me yelling at artists at one part Point. So uh, yeah, so yeah. If you want to go back when you do the hidden years, uh, it kept, kept picking up on that. I'd be happy to come back and uh, use that as silver sable or whatever else you want to talk to you about. And that I would be thrilled to have you back on. That would be fun. This has been uh, fun. We're also the three of us going to go into business and launch a Lorelai blow up doll. When you push her tummy, she goes ooh. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, honestly, be... you know all that hair. I don't know what I mean as a dude. That's just something so sexy about that cascades of hair. I don't know what I, you know, that's like, a, it's always, it's like somebody's weird. It's like always like a fantasy. Oh, if I ever could meet some girl that had all this, this hair and you never just, 
which is so terrible. So as someone who ha- who owns a lot of hair and like lots of big hair, it is so hard to maintain. Oh, and, I, I imagine. So it's, and it's heavy to wear. So like uh, a wig that, that I have that's really heavy and really long is my vertigo wig because it's a full wig that I've sewn two full bags of hair into wow. to give her like the, the streaks of different greens and, and stuff. It is so heavy. I've performed in it once and as someone who like secures their wig on, I almost lost my hair because it was so heavy. And I can't imagine, again, like a, a character like Medusa, for example, whose hair like becomes like, you know, she can like move. It's like his own character. Yeah. But like someone like Lorelai, I'm like, girl, that, that hair's got to be heavy. Oh, yeah. Like, that's just, just, that's just so much hair. Well, but as long as you have the boob window, that, it, that that's, I, I mean, that, that's the, the boob window is really what counteracts that, and it yeah. really and then it really you can put the ballot. You can put part of your hair through the boob window. <laughs> it's great. <perfect. Right. laughs> All right, we got to wrap up from there, uh, Gregor. It's such an honor to get to know you, uh, Demanda. Oh, I love hanging so out with fun. you anytime and every time. And Demanda is in full Silver Sable cosplay. I, I need a picture of you in that costume. You're uh, gonna so post I'll, some photos, right? Yeah. Yes. I, I yeah, will post some photos. Photo. This is. I. This is. Uh, this is like. It's such a thrill to have somebody just you know dressed up as as Silver Sable. And I. You know what? I. I'm loving the 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 lipstick, because normally she doesn't do that. But I do that a lot on on characters, uh, female characters that are like gothic or something. But I do so, a lot of different lipsticks. So I, I I looked up a lot of references. So uh, in in the comic books and in images that I found, she's either a nude lip. Which doesn't, I, I've done a, a lot of nude lips recently, which is why I didn't do it. She does a nude lip or she does a silver lip. So this is like yeah. a black metallic lipstick that I've put some silver eyeshadow over. Yeah, um, it. So it's it's a little too dark because again, it started with with a black. Um, I just don't, I just didn't have anything uh, else offhand. But, but yeah, I was really trying to like, I was like, I'm going to be on there with, <laughs> with, with Gregory Wright. And I need to make sure that like I have it. <laughs> Perfect. Um, the hair is perfect. It, it, it couldn't be more perfect. That's like the total Stephen Butler, uh, you know, silver sable hair. I'm like, wow, look at that. Amazing. Even without all the bangles and stuff, it's like, look, silver sable. That's exactly right. I, 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 I know. And, and all this has done is maybe want to like get a legit suit with like, you know, the whole thing. But also, I really want that jacket. That jacket is so rad. Well, that's so as nice, we're... Though. She wears all kinds of design so you can you can just kind of go with whatever combination right. you want because i said she's never going to wear the same costume all the time she can have the jacket she cannot have a jacket whatever you want to design because you know and i liked it when she had jackets on mm-hmm. um, i don't know why i just like jackets as we are wrapping up uh normally we record this show a week or two in advance sometimes three this time it's five i'm taking a break over the holidays we're releasing this episode on january 23rd I'm leaving from here to go hear my fifth graders orchestra recital. <laughs> I'm so Funny proud. Enough, of them. So am I. I'm so proud of them. But... <laughs> I'm doing the same thing. I'm, li- I'm literally going to hear uh, the or- an orchestra band and chorus sing uh, tonight. We are in sync in so many ways. It's very, um, very funny. As we're wrapping up, as uh, if people would like to find each of you online, uh, let us know where they can find you. And if you want to plug anything for late January, let me know. You can find Gray Malkin Lane, Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Major content coming up. I'm super excited. I'll just take this chance to announce the next couple of episodes. Excuse me. The episode after this is going to be the trial of Sean Cassidy, the Banshee. 
which is going to be incredible. Oh, I thought it was going to be the other kind of Sean Cassidy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after that, Century X-Men number one with uh, the incredible Tom Brevoort is returning. And uh, right after that, we're going to hit the Angel Revelations limited series. If you are familiar with that, it's beautiful uh, with the like powerhouse combination of Shelby Criswell and Steens. Uh, so make sure to tune in. We've got some really cool X-Men stuff coming your way. Uh, let's go to Amanda and then Greg. Uh, you can find me at Demanda Martini, D-M-A-N-D-A-M-A-R-T-I-N-I, um, across all social media platforms. Uh, in January, when this episode comes out, uh, I will be gearing up to head out to Utah. We're going to hang out in person. I know, we're going to hang out in person. Um, I'm going out there for a wedding, and then I will also be um, actually meeting at my old college campus at Utah State University, talking to the Queer Student Alliance which is really cool. And also uh, meeting up with Chad and hanging out um, as well as performing at a drag brunch out there in Park City. So I'm really excited. Um, very soon after that, um, I'm going to be uh, guesting and performing at Farpoint Convention out here in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, we're going to have, we have um, our amazing drag show called To Farpoint and Beyond uh, starring myself, Dax exclamation point from RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, Logan Stone, Charlemagne Chateau, and Tiffany D. Carter. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then uh, I have a very busy 2023 plan. So come follow me and see what's up. Happy, happy holidays, my friend. And then over to Greg. First off, Tom Brevoort was my intern. <laughs> he was the greatest intern that anybody will ever have. It, it, three different editors. We, we couldn't we couldn't get him uh we kept him so busy he, we couldn't make him fail tom so, is my former boss he's been on the show before and we had such a great time i'm so excited he's coming more connections yeah yeah well yeah we have, we have a few one of these days we got to be we got to meet in person and hang out that we're gonna have a, we'll have a good time i would love um, that so you can find me on facebook under gregory Wright. that's generally where i hang out the most uh that's the easiest place to find me um, I'm also on Instagram, uh, G Wright Stuff. Mostly you'll see me posting pictures of food um, on that. Uh, I'm currently working on The Ghosts of Matakumba Key, which is a, uh, a an independent comic that's uh, written and drawn by Graham Nolan, of uh, the co-creator of Bane. Uh, and if you go online, you'll some of the art that, I, that we're doing on that is posted, and it's, uh, there's, there, it's still being crowdfunded at the moment. Um, so if you're interested in seeing what, what my current color looks like, it's, uh, it's on my pages you can see it. And uh, you get the co-creator of Bane and the creator of Cathode all in one place. I know, you know, <laughs> you, cut, you, brought, you know, I, I knew you were going to bring, I was like, I have no explanation for that. Uh, <laughs> no explanation whatsoever. Um, yeah, and, and if, uh, once, once the COVID thing stops, uh, I also do a lot of, um, chef conventions um and if you show up at a chef convention you might see me uh, working with uh some top chefs from around the, the country serving up you know 500 plates of, of food to uh rich people that you know come to the convention well in uh in 2023 we're going to continue mixing in the modern content that's set in the 60s uh we should hit if the schedule goes as planned we should hit the x-men 66 book in the first episode of March. And then we have some crazy cool stuff coming up after that. So stay tuned. We got a lot of great things coming your way this year. Uh, Demanda, Gregory, thank you both so much. Uh, we will see you all back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane.
Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.